Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give industry insiders perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So very quick intros. Um, first, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, there's Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Uh, next, we have Tarun, Gigabrain, and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. And myself, Hasib, I'm the chief hype man at Dragonfly. And today we have joining us a special guest, the Baron of the Bahamas, Sam Bankman-Fried, otherwise known as SPF. Uh, so the... I usually say the four of us, uh, but the original four of us are early stage investors in crypto. And then we've got a amazing founder who's joining us today. But I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. So with that out of the way, Sam, how are you doing? I know that you've had some tech trolls getting on board. Uh, how, yep. How's life? You know, it's been pretty good. It's been busy as always. I'm in D.C. right now for the uh, second time this month um, and uh, testifying in about uh 16 hours. That's exciting. How many of those hours will you be sleeping? Oh, I'm guessing five, four, something like that. Okay. That sounds, that, that, so the rumors are true. Yeah, um, we'll see. So I'll tell try me, and get eight, but yeah. Any, any lessons learned from last go around that you were uh, testifying? Yeah. I mean, I, I think to some extent the lesson was like, it, it was sort of what it seemed like. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think that the biggest surprising thing, honestly, was how constructive it was. Like, I, I was honestly expecting a bit of a shit show. Like, I, I was sort of, like, expecting a lot of partisan bickering. And there just wasn't. Like, it was sort of, like, almost everyone had a constructive attitude in, across both aisles. That was, just like, legitimately was surprising. You know, and, and then beyond that, you know, I think everyone has, you know, their own questions that they're, like, most interested in in the house. But, um, I, but I don't know. It, it, was, it was fun. Robert, you spend a good amount of time uh, talking to legislators and, and lawmakers, right? Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, I've been one of the you know advocates for DeFi um, and one of the founders that has been sort of championing the idea and the cause um, long before it got to what DeFi is today. So today, it's a huge umbrella which encompasses so many different things. You know, the DeFi you know of yesteryear was you know a very limited number of projects like Compound, MakerDAO. And systems like that. And so, you know, I've been, you know, educating, um, you know, our elected and appointed officials for a long time about what is DeFi. The phrase has sort of evolved a bit. And now, you know, when you read a Bloomberg headline, um, oftentimes things that are not DeFi get called DeFi. And so I think it's, you know, creating a little bit more confusion than uh, there used to be. But, you know, it's been a long time passion. So let's, let's go ahead and jump into news. So what we're going to do this, um, uh, for, this, for this today's show is we'll start by going through some of the interesting news items of the week, and then we'll circle back and start asking Sam questions. So that's the, that's the, that's the game plan. So uh, first piece of news, um, well, well, first of all, I wanted to congratulate Sam for the amazing fundraise that was recently announced for FTX. I think between FTX US and FTX, the parent co, or whatever, FTX main, FTX.com, 
Uh, you guys are now collectively 40 billion in valuation, which puts you almost on par with Coinbase. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. Um, it's been a wild ride. And I mean, just the difference between now and a year ago is, is really, you know, here too, especially massive. And I, I, I mean, I think the weirdest thing to me about it is, or the most surprising thing is just that like the best predictor I think of, of our path was like, if you sort of threw out all the outside views and threw out all the sanity checking and just like, I don't know, write down on a piece of paper, what could happen? It's still like, it still would not have predicted it correctly. I think like a billion dollars a day of volume on FTX was sort of my like, wow, there's we chance we could get there. And we're at, you know, 15 times that, but, but I still think that that was a better predictor than like trying to bake into it. Any, any other sort of like conventional wisdom or, or, or anything like that. Well, yeah, it's, completely incredible to see how meteoric the rise of FTX has been. And uh, I think we've got a lot more questions for you that we'll, that we'll hold to the end. But that was probably one of the, you know, probably the blockbuster fundraising news of the last couple of weeks. So congratulations to you for being a part of that. And then again, part of the kind of the, the Sam universe, of course, is Solana. And the other big news of the week was this uh, wormhole hack that took place on Solana. So just the very kind of headline summary, basically what happened is that, so Wormhole is one of the major bridges that extends into Solana. It's a multi-chain bridge, so it's not just Solana, but the Solana side was the part that got uh, hacked. And the entire size of the hack was $325 million that was hacked. Basically, the attacker was able to go onto the Solana side of the chain, issue unbacked Ether, and then withdraw that unbacked Ether into Ethereum and run off with the money. Um, and what ended up happening is, I believe within a day, Jump, which uh, uh, acquired Certus, which actually developed the original Wormhole Bridge, and Jump is now the primary maintainer of Wormhole, uh, they basically decided, my understanding is that entirely off balance sheet, to fill the hole and recapitalize all $325 million worth of Ether in order to save the day and, uh, and basically patch the, the hole in the bridge. So um, all is relatively well in Solana land, but it was a Something of a near-death experience for a lot of folks, especially in Solana DeFi, um, who realize all of a sudden that their, uh, <laughs> you know, the bank that they thought they had uh, money in uh, was empty. And uh, so it was, it was a pretty wild experience. Uh, any reflections from folks on what happened that day? Yeah, I, I guess one, you know, the obvious statement is building bridges is hard. The second statement is, um, you know, there's actually been this fight sort of in, in, in between sort of like the Solana and Cosmos ecosystems. I would call it a fight. I'd call it a philosophical disagreement of whether you should have multiple wrapped token types for bridged assets versus non-bridged assets. And I actually think in the Solana world, people went a little crazy with like how many different synthetic uh, wrapped ETH versions there were. And that's, that made it a lot harder to actually be able to reason about sort of like the state of like a lot of the lending protocols because they would they'd have like one type of staked ETH uh, that was on wormhole, another type that was on a different bridge. And, you know, people had loans where they were sort of borrowing both against a single type of collateral or borrowing stable coins against both of those. And it became, that was like one of the cr crazier and more gnarly types of things we saw. And, you know, getting used to these like bridge synthetics, I think is a really big part uh, of cross-chain DeFi that has not been solved. Well, just to step back and go to like 90,000 feet real quick. So as I understand what happened for anyone who's listening, who hasn't gone into like the deep detail about what happened, you had wormhole, which allowed people to take 
Ether from the Ethereum blockchain and create essentially a shadow asset on Solana, which is Wormhole Weth. And the incident was somebody was able to print a huge amount of unbacked Wormhole Weth on Solana. And this Wormhole Weth was redeemed on Ethereum. They took real Ether out on the Ethereum side and they had extra Wormhole Weth tokens on Solana which they then cause havoc intentionally and unintentionally with uh, in the Solana ecosystem. In that, you know, Wormhole Weth didn't have any assets backing it, and the attacker had extra Wormhole Weth to play with. So this is how we sort of begin the story. Yeah, I thought the the mechanism was also pretty interesting. Like, I think Sam Sun had this had this thread about it, and it was like so so innocent. It was basically. There's like this one pre-compile that um, Solana uses to basically verify a signature. And it was like missing in like what the Solidity version or the uh, or Solana program version rather that Wormo was using versus like a prior version. And so therefore, like the, the signature wasn't checked. And so really, really innocent mistake. But of course, it, now it's a you know $325 million mistake. I don't know if it's totally innocent. It was, it was, it was it, their <laughs> PR was already the PR was already up for it. In fact, that was the craziest part, right? Like the my, PR my was understanding there is that the, the PR the PR was up, but I jumped did not realize the consequence of the. It was just kind of a routine upgrade, right? It's like okay, well, there's some deprecation yeah. in the code. We got to change over to this thing, but they had no idea that there was this level of uh, vulnerability introduced yeah, by the code change. True, I'm sure you cannot cite all the intricacies of every different you know version and subversion of Solidity. No, 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 and I, so, I, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I'm I'm just more pointing out that it it was it was actually. A known issue, it just like people didn't realize the spoofing level could be as high. Like you could actually call something of that function size, like mint. Yeah, I think I think one of the 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 repeated bad takes that I saw is that like, oh, this shows that like Solana is broken or that uh oh we really yep. need layer twos oh. in order to solve this problem. And the reality is that uh it was a software layer bug. And the software layer bug was at the connective tissue between two systems, right? It's like how these two systems are going to talk to each other and authenticate that decisions are being made correctly. And um, the problem was not, like if this was a layer two bridge, you would have, like the same kind of failure could have happened. So the problem is not intrinsically even about Solana, or I mean, in some sense it is, because obviously this was a Solana code change that ended up uh, triggering this, this mistake. But it's fundamentally a problem about connecting up two blockchains. And those two blockchains can be a layer one and a layer two. They can be two different uh, layer ones, it could be really anything you're connecting to. The important take home is that cross chain is really freaking hard. And it's very likely this is not going to be the last mistake we see in the cross chain universe. To completely agree. Bridging is hard. And all bridges are sort of hard in similar ways. Whether you're bridging a layer two, a layer one, two layer ones, two layer twos, bridging, I don't know, two countries, whatever. It's, it's, uh, uh, you've got like two different ledgers that aren't the same ledger and that don't read each other. And you know, and I think in particular, maybe an interesting part of this is Wormhole was intended to be one of the more decentralized bridges. There's a lot of bridges and they will all brand themselves decentralized. Most of them is decentralized in that there's two different keys that one person has both of that are necessary in order to mint the asset or like they're decentralized, right? It's just like there's a guy, he's like, guy's ledger. And it's like, ah, oh, someone sent me some, some of this token. Yeah, sure. I'll send back some of this other one. I'll mint some. You know, I got the key for that. that that's how bridges usually Right. And, and like, you know, being a little bit glib, but but, you know, the more decentralized you try and make it. On the one hand, it provides a lot of great properties. It's also way easier to fuck up. Right. Because fundamentally, like 
it's it's a lot easier just run an AWS service that like checks that the balances are correct and like never give anyone else permission to do anything. If you're trying to make permission be something much more complicated than what you dictate, it's again really powerful, but also really easy to to screw up. I think that's one hundred percent right, and I think uh, you know one of the concepts we we were discussing this internally, and one of the concepts that I've started to really like is this notion of uh, private bridges and state-backed bridges. And what you see today is that actually the vast majority of the bridges are quote unquote state backed or sort of state sponsored, meaning that the blockchain themselves endorse and like kind of route traffic through a particular bridge. And I think what you're going to see over time is that um, these bridges are just going to be absolutely dominant, the ones that are state backed. It's very hard for these private bridges that are sort of third parties developing on these chains to win. And the reason why, at least for cross chain transfers, why that's so hard to, to break that is because bridges are by and large a public good for the blockchain that wants to get assets over the bridge. And as a result, they're, they're, you know, bridges are, are basically banks when it comes to you know, these sort of bi-directional type bridges. They're basically banks. They have assets on one side, liabilities on the other side. And the goal is to make sure that the bank vault is always you know, correctly uh, sized for all the liabilities. And if something goes wrong, as it did with Wormhole, as it has with other bridges in the past, the ultimate thing that's going to give you confidence that the bridge is going to be okay is the size of the sovereign backing the bridge. And in this case, you know, it was Jump was this kind of pseudo sovereign player that was like, okay, look, you know, this wormhole is so important and Solana is so important that we're just going to put all the money in and make sure that we have enough capital to keep this whole thing alive. You know, if, if this was some other bridge, like some other, you know, small startup that was creating a bridge between a couple of chains, and if it got hacked for 300 million, uh, it's game over, right? It's, it's sort of a Bitfinex situation where now, you know, we're trading IOUs about whether this bridge will ever make enough money again. Yeah, I mean, it's it it seems sort of shitty to say, but the honest answer is like, yeah, the size of the bankroll, the person who issues the bridge tokens matters, and it matters. You know, even if there isn't an explicit insurance fund for it, it gives you a sense of how big the implicit insurance fund might or might not be, and that's sort of the the world we we live in. I, I, actually, I mean, I feel like Compound, the protocol, is one of the cleanest examples of like. Yeah, I think it's one of the protocols which has the a maximized ratio of like complexity to failure while being fully decentralized. Like it, it's like like I think in terms it, it's like one of the it's not that it's the most complex protocol ever. It definitely isn't. But like I, I think that's one thing that's impressed me about it is having even the updating code for it be actually fully on chain, but also it's not broken and it doesn't break periodically i think is like somewhat impressive and it's like somewhere somewhere in a weird corner of the spectrum that doesn't get explored very much of like yeah. high decentralization moderate complexity and like low failure well that's that's like the original DeFi vision right which is like you can take a smart contract which is a piece of code that is going to do one thing really well and really robustly, so well and so robustly that you can rely on it in a different program and it's composable. And you build it so that it'll always work with a very simple API or interface and will work in a decentralized fashion and will work forever. And since then, you know, that's slow and hard to build. And so I think a lot of the development activity has really excelled in other corners of the world, which is like, oh, it's centralized and it's fast and we change it every single day. Or, you know, it's, you know, a different approach entirely. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a great approach. It's just really 
the downside is it's very slow to develop a system like that to prove our product market fit and to get things going. Yeah, and, and actually one thing I'd say historically, you know, if we look at the history of compute in general, right, like parallel processors, like getting to single core Linux took, you know, five years, let's say roughly. Getting to like SMP and like multi-core Linux took like 15 years. So there's a lot of, it just takes a long time to get, you know, many different systems to interact in a way that's sort of efficient. Um, I had this one really awesome coworker a long time ago who actually now is the head of research at Jump, uh, who had this, this, this statement, which is, you can pull a, a carriage with two horses, but can you pull a carriage with 1024 chickens? And uh, that's, that's, sort of a, that's, sort of a, that's sort of a thing to think about when you're thinking about these systems in a lot of ways. I love that. That's great. It's just very intuitive as to like what the problem is, right? Like when, yeah. you, when you stay it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Okay. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on. Um, so uh, another piece of news, uh, this, I mean, this one, because we tend to talk about weird DAOs, uh, another, another tidbit in the world of weird DAOs, uh, we now have a DAO that's even larger than constitution DAO, Assange DAO, which raised $41 million on Juicebox. To try to, I'm not exactly sure what it's trying to do. It's it's something related to getting Julian Assange out of where he is, uh, which yeah. I don't know why money is going to solve this problem. Do, does anyone know yes. the story here? Yes, it's it's actually it is a bit strange. Um, so people probably remember Constitution DAO also used Juicebox to you know do fundraising to buy this copy of the U.S. Constitution. Assange DAO actually has more um, in ETH, but roughly the same amount in, in dollar amount to you know, ostensibly support Julian Assange, but the way they do it is a bit strange. Basically, they are buying this one-of-one one NFT by Pac, who's a you know, famous NFT artist, and the, but the Pac sale, the proceeds from that are going to Julian Assange's defense fund, basically fighting this case saying that uh, the UK wow. is unfairly uh, extraditing him to the US. And so, yeah, it's, it's basically going into his defense fund, but in a very sort of roundabout crypto-y way. That sounds so they're like buying an NFT with all that money. Yes. 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 I'm like, yeah, why can't they just donate directly or, or but but you know, that aside, I think yeah, we talked about Constitution Whoa. DAO. Um uh, go ahead. Oh, I mean it seems brilliant, way better than donating directly, right? If you donate directly, you get nothing. Here you get an NFT. Think about that is that a very NFT fair point. $41 million. Exactly, Clearly right? they get the NFT and they give the money to Julian. Exactly. Assange. Amazing. It's, it's like we added intellectual property to philanthropy. I, I, impact but, certificate. Yeah. This, this is in fact almost exactly <laughs> an impact certificate. The, the problem though, is that it's unclear that uh, Julian needs 41 million for his defense. Like I'm, it's it's an open question whether this is a good way to get to. Oh, and we're not America. necessarily making comments about the hyper quality, the actual impact, impact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This, this well, does feel like I think someone said this a while ago, which was like if if sort of the you know if the two thousands and twenty tens was sort of about you know internet mobs collectively uh, communicating and and you know, uh, exacting some sort of you know real world action or real world consequence. Basically, DeFi allows them to do that with uh, finance, and we sort of are seeing this more and more of sort of like, you know, global crowdfunding and, and global uh, capital formation. Um, and this is like the latest incarnation of it, right? I think, you know, 4chan and Reddit and all these these internet forums have been, you know, long supporters of Julian Assange, but there's only so much that, you know, writing to your congressman will do. 
But now that you have $42 million, you can you know, move your cause uh, p- pretty far with, with that amount of capital. And I'd, I'd expect we'll to see more and more things like this uh, going forward. Yeah, I feel like in some way this is like, um, what's, what's it called when you take like a neural net and you kind of like sort of figure out like what is the thing that's going to activate it the most? I feel like this is like that version for the internet, like Julian Assange plus Dow plus lots of money plus yeah. NFT. And like, you just end up with this thing and it's like, oh yeah, this is just like tickle the hindbrain of the internet as deeply as you can. And this is what happened. I mean, it would be better if Julian Assange minted NFTs for everybody who donated. Then it would raise 200 million and we'd be having a very different tier of conversation. Yeah, right. Sam, Sam, you, you, you've probably thought the most about alternative donation mechanisms. How do you feel about this, Mike? You know, what would you optimize differently if you were in yeah. charge? Well, overall, I think it's a really good idea. Sorry, I think it's a cool idea as far as not commenting on the donation itself. Um, on the sort of like method here, I, I, think, I think it's basically an inter- impact certificate. And what it can let you do is be entrepreneurial about philanthropy. And, 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 and so maybe to flesh this out a little bit, like part of the cool thing here is let's say that like there is someone who's going to do something really good for the world, right? And like, you didn't have like a lot of capital to donate yourself, but y- you eventually thought the whole world was gonna be like, oh, that guy's fucking baller. Like what he did was great, right? Um, but the problem is he needs the money before he does the great thing, right? Or it doesn't work. You can't, he can't go into debt to do it. Um, uh, but like, you're stretched pretty thin. You'd have to give like literally everything you have or something in order to fund him to do this thing. And there are lots of people with lots of money who will, in retrospect, wish they had funded it were it to happen, but only if it happens and proves they should have funded it. So what you can do is, is something like this, where you say, all right, here's the deal. I'll fund it. And I get the NFT for having funded it at the impact certificate, NFT, whatever you want to call it. Then they go, they do the thing. Whole world's like, holy shit, this guy's awesome. It's an amazing thing to do. And you're like, great. Here's this certificate of having done this great thing. How much is worth? You know, people are like $200 million, like great, sold. And and now the guy got his funding. You were, you know, making the market more efficient, right? Bringing the funding to the the good causes that needed it before the rest of the world realized they needed it. You get rewarded for that. You bought the NFT and then sold it for more later. And the large donors still get to cause good things to happen because if they make a, a sort of like pattern of this, people are like, oh, great. Like we fund good things that we see and others don't. We can later sell the impact of that to the ultimate donors for a profit and and so thus we will go search out cool awesome things to do for the world that other people wouldn't notice and make those happen there's a sense in which what we are seeing here is a kind of permutation of of what was previously called impact certificates so it's interesting i think it's, well i uh, think the interesting thing is that people didn't trade impact certificates before right well, they were supposed yeah. to, the, the intrinsic idea was that they were supposed to, but of course nobody actually cared because there were no NFTs back then. So now that we have I NFTs, mean, we have solved in one fell swoop the entire illiquidity Juice, problem. Juicebox contributions are tokenized, right? You sort of saw about that with people, with Constitution DAO, which went up like 100x. And so if you do you know, donate to Assange DAO, you are getting justice tokens, which who knows what those will trade at, but you know, you could sort of think of them in the sense of, of index certificates. Do you think oh, the contributions yeah. are a response to the overvaluation of people? Potentially, but, uh, you know, who's to say what people's you know, motivations are and is it so wrong if, if there's some profit motivation in, in someone's you know, donation <laughs> to Assange DAO? Yeah, I mean, obviously, in, like most of these crazy DAOs we're seeing are just the things that manage to, they're, they're, they're the most 
evolutionarily fit memes that just kind of burst yep. their way onto headlines. And um, it, it sort of becomes this like, this kind of ratcheting up game of, of kind of who can do the most you know, ridiculous thing and get attention. Now, that being said, you know, look, I'm not taking any view on Julian Assange. I think you know, this is not an unreasonable thing to care about. It'd be surprising to me if he needs 41 million for his legal defense fund. You know, what do I know? Maybe he's got a very expensive set of lawyers. What would what would you do differently, Sam? Like, let's say let's say you wanted to make it an impactful Assange DAO. I I mean, well, okay, sorry. Do you differently in the market construct or in like what the money would do? Oh, well, yeah, the market construct. Let's suppose there was oh. some way of measuring an yep. outcome, right? Because the problem is the outcome is completely not tied to this fundraising yeah. vehicle. Yeah. Well, I think it's quite in the end. I think it's quite hard to have. You could imagine, so here's the thing you could do in this specific case, but it doesn't work necessarily in general, is you could say that um, there's, you know, that there's some payoff related to whether or not he is extradited or have, have some measurable outcome here that this is like ultimately tied to. And then what you could get is a bunch of people to pledge to pay some amount for it conditional on that, right? So you could imagine that like what happens is that, you know, some foundation says, look, conditional on achieving this well-defined goal, we will pay $200 million for this NFT. And otherwise, we will have absolutely no interest in the NFT. Um, and then it, if theoretically it had no mean value, which maybe it does, but if, if it... Sam, we just no. lost you again. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, the thing Sam's pointing out is actually this very old sort of mechanism that Vitalik proposed in 2018, the DICO. Uh, which was like supposed to it's basically do this, but it was like pre, pre, pre NFT. Daiko yeah, didn't yeah. have this NFT concept. I, mean, I would say it's like a Daiko. It's just more like a prize. It's effectively like a prize. Uh, I mean, Daiko is like a prize, right? It was like a metered. You would Dico get is more like some, a yeah. yeah. It's more like it's more like you you achieve sort of you know, further funding goals if you hit certain milestones. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's basically like a permutation of a prize that then you know the receipt the receipt of that prize is tradable in some sense mm -hmm. or a certificate of that prize. Which, in some sense, like kind of defeats the point of the prize. Maybe in some, you know, if you, if you had a Nobel Prize that was just being traded around in the secondary market, it'd be a little bit weird. Well, but it's weird. But I'm not sure it's crazy, right? Because what it means is that, like, if you can do something Nobel Prize worthy, you'll get actually paid money for it, according to how cool people more think that the, is. More than the nominal prize. Of, more than the, the nominal, nominal amount. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You'll get paid how much the world actually values your <laughs> NFT, which is exactly the same as they value what you did. Because of course, that's how it works. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, let's 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 move on. Um, so there was uh, another piece of news. Uh, this thing. So GameStop and Immutable X did a partnership, uh, and so GameStop is going to be launching their NFT marketplace in partnership with Immutable X. You guys might remember Immutable X. They're a uh, Starkware powered uh, zk rollup NFT marketplace. Uh, they originally came out of the team that built Gods Unchained, and later they also. Uh, uh, they did this partnership with TikTok. Uh, it's like TikTok moments thing. And so Immutable X uh, gave GameStop a bunch of IMX tokens, which is the, the tokens for the, the, the Immutable X platform. And GameStop then subsequently immediately market dumped something like, what was it, like $40, 35000000 million worth of this token? And people got mad on Twitter. So I, I, we, we had a big debate internally about whether this is even a story. Because ultimately, like, you know, if you give somebody a grant and you don't, have any vesting on that grant, the understanding is like, okay, well, we have costs associated with like building stuff. So when you give us tokens, like what, what do you want us to, like we need working capital, we need to sell it to go hire engineers. Uh, but the, it was very interesting how 
very strongly the reaction is, oh, no, no, you guys are assholes and you're terrible and how could you have done this to us? Uh, so cur curious what you guys think. Like, what, what are the norms here when you receive yeah. a grant from a group like this? So here's the fucked up thing, right? Right. Like, if they'd gotten dollars, let's say Mutable X paid them 100 million US dollar bill for this, no one would have complained that they weren't toddlers, right? No one would have said, why didn't you use those dollars to buy the Immutable X token in the market, <laughs> right? But if you give them Immutable X tokens and they sell the tokens, people aren't like, oh, we're back to that original estate that we were fine with. They're like, what the fuck? You sold the token, right? It, it, <laughs> it's, it, the framing is very different, even though it's a similar... Sam, we lost you. Maybe part of the lesson here is uh, GameStop needs better trade execution. Uh, so then it just immediately, you know, market dump however much it was and then said, yeah, spread it out over time. So, you know, it's not, not so immediately noticeable, but I'm kind of you know, inclined to agree. I think like at ZRX or ZRX, we give out grants in ZRX and you know, it's expected, especially for a lot of these early stage startups, which actually are very cash strapped, maybe unlike GameStop, that it's expected that they you know sell it to you know pay their employees and to pay for servers and stuff like that. Maybe part of the weirdness too was GameStop has raised a bunch of money by selling stock in the stock market recently. And so it's like, did you really need that extra you know, $40 million or, or uh, whatever the, the number was? Well, I think the thing that made people unhappy was that there was an expectation when you're giving tokens that you're going to have long-term alignment of interest, right? That GameStop and Immutable X are going to be partners and teammates for a long time. And it's the view of GameStop and Immutable, Immutable X, like, oh yeah, of course we're teammates, right? Like we gave them a whole bucket worth of value and we're building this huge thing together. But to a community member, you know, you see that there's a more pure alignment of interest that's possible. They hold the token. They benefit when token go up, right? And that didn't happen here. So I think there's really two, you know, modifications that you might see down the road in a future BD world. One is vested tokens or something that, like, unlocks over time. You know, we're seeing this pop up all the time in DAOs and DeFi and protocol to protocol interactions is becoming way more common. It's, it's always been common with investors and things with tokens, um, especially when there isn't vesting or lockups, you know, the market learns why there should be very quickly. So I think it's the first change that might happen in future projects is you'll see lockups. If it's like a system like Immutable X giving tokens to a company like GameStop for a massive BT deal, it probably won't be immediately liquid. It might yeah. vest over years, right? And the second thing you might start to see is it looking more like how you incentivize employees, which is, you know, you might see it look more like options or upside in a relationship as opposed to here's a huge amount of value today. And, you know, I don't think, you know, obviously I'm a little bit biased as an investor and immutable, but like, I don't think what they did today was that bad. I think the communities are going to learn better approaches to structuring these long-term relationships over time. And then next time there's a company like immutable and a company like GameStop, it probably won't be tokens that get market sold at the very outset of the relationship. Maybe a few other things. I, I basically agree. A few other things. First of all, if you want to blame someone, like I, I think you can blame Immutable X as much as GameStop here. Like Immutable could have paid in dollars. 100%. Instead, they paid in tokens. Were they the ones who dumped? Like really, is there Immutable's treasury that dumped that $100 million? And, right, and GameStop just purchased and then sold them if you want to think about it that way, right? And so I think it's as much a question of like, why they pay the tokens and not dollars as anything else. And I think what it gets to is something like, like Robert's point, which is like, there's sort of not that much point in giving someone unlocked, fully vested liquid tokens instead of dollars. 
because they could use the dollars to buy the tokens if they wanted. They could sell the tokens for the dollars, six to one, half dozen at the other. But yeah, I think basically if you're giving unlocked, fully vested liquid tokens, it's the same as dollars. And it's just a sort of a fiction that they're like very different and it's just the frame. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, um, there are two remaining items, so we'll try to be relatively quick. So the big drama of the week in kind of, you know, social media. There, this wasn't a stuff. week of just one big drama. I know, there are multiple. There's always <laughs> big dramas because it's crypto Twitter. So, okay, so ENS, the Ethereum naming service, which is basically like a big, you know, it's kind of, you get something, something dot ENS uh, associated with your name. Or dot ETH, dot ETH, dot ETH. Dot, oh, sorry, dot ETH. There is a gentleman by the name of Brantley Milligan, who is a director of operations at uh, ENS. He's been there for a long time. And he wrote a bunch of tweets in 2016. And my understanding is that he actually wrote a bunch of tweets like in his entire career as a tweeter that basically were uh, very, so he's a staunch Catholic and he's very anti-gay, anti kind of everything that Catholics don't like, I guess. Uh, and he's been very public about it and very, um, you know, offensive of, kind of, you know, first world norms. And, um, this broke out into this big conflict, especially as, you know, the, the tent of Ethereum has grown quite a bit with the advent of NFTs. You know, it used to be that people in Ethereum would kind of be like, ah, whatever, who cares? You know, everybody can just have their crazy libertarian views and go live off in a corner and it's fine. But there's now this big conversation going on in Ethereum about cancel culture, free speech. You know, this guy's a Catholic. A lot of people in the world believe this stuff, but it's also not inclusionary. Um, and so what do you want to do? As of yesterday, he was removed from ENS, uh, basically fired. But it kind of brought about this big culture war that has been noticeably missing in crypto that uh, kind of reared its head in the Ethereum community. Curious, uh, also, he was, he, was, he was fired by a company that has contracted to do work for the DAO, technically obviously. not fired from the... Right, let's, let's get this <laughs> okay. correct. For, on, in for terms of DAO-related things, he was undelegated from. But. He was undelegated from the DAO. Thank you for that clarification, Tarun. So, I mean, look, I, I just very quickly give my two cents. Um, I, you know, I, I, in general, I don't have a very strong view about people who are just sitting around doing their jobs, having beliefs that I disagree with. But I, I kind of agree, like, look, man, it's 2022. Like, I don't know. This is not even like a mainstream Catholic thing to be constantly hating on, you know, people who are into same-sex marriage. Um, so I, I, I just think, like, at, at a certain point, like, if you're going to be loud about it on Twitter... I don't know. We can find other director of ops, you know, like it's fine. There are plenty of people out there who want to help out with the NS. So, but, it, but in general, the, the cancel culture thing coming to crypto uh, is interesting. And I think this is kind of the first beachhead. We saw something like this with open source happen, um, you know, probably about started probably about four or five years ago. And then the kind of culture around open source totally changed, but open source used to look a lot like crypto in that regard. I mean, uh, let's put it this way. The Rust community is 80% crypto haters, 20% crypto lovers, and it's very closely related to this. <laughs> There's the, there was a schism there as well. Right. I mean, I think like one thing, and this doesn't answer the ultimate question, but I think it's like relevant for the proximate one, is acknowledging that like maybe he was fired because the company and or DAO and or company DAO combination that had hired him disagreed with his beliefs. Maybe he was fired because they were worried about the PR impact of other people disagreeing with his belief. Not clear exactly which one of those it is or where on that spectrum it is. I think it maybe doesn't impact the end result or the impact of it on society, but impacts where you should direct your love and or hatred. 
depending on how you feel about it. Well, I think it's also at the heart of crypto, right? If you remember the Coinbase drama, when Brian Armstrong posted his big piece about Coinbase being an apolitical place. Oh yeah, that's a really smart piece to have posted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, well, but in it, retrospect, but it, it the goes pe- the soul of crypto. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is really intrinsic to what how our industry works. Like the, I mean, Sam, wh- wh- how how do you think about this? Given that you know you just caught up to Coinbase, and Coinbase has kind of put out this big memorandum about their view on the intersection of politics, you know, cancel culture, kind of you know, cultural battles. Where does FTX fit in that spectrum? I mean, I'd like to say that that's like you know, we're not trying to take a side in it. It's sort of like my- Oh my, no, Sam's mic but, just went out. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, was hopeful. I, I was hopeful. I was, I was grateful, but no. No, 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 you're good. Keep <laughs> no, going, keep going. No, um, it's complicated. Yeah, no, it's a shitty answer, but like, you know, I, and, and I think I will say that like, two different things you could say that I feel somewhat differently about. One of them is like, you know, one could say like that, you know, they don't, think that people should bring their that their politics should be knowable or known at work at all and another thing is like that people should be able to work productively with each other as a team independent of their political beliefs i certainly agree with the second one much more so than the first one i I wasn't sure exactly which of those was intended i think by coinbase's piece on this and I, i think that like you know my my take is roughly like you know people are welcome to have the beliefs that they want. And I'm not going to pretend that none of those are ever going to make it into work and that none of those are ever going to be discussed at the office. Oh, I, I guess I, I was just more going to say, I, I actually think the Coinbase post reads better now than it did then um, mm. in some ways. And, and also the interesting thing is like, I think Nick from ENS had like a tweet like criticizing FWB for retroactively changing their mind on something. And I kind of, there's, 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 there's kind of, I think it's like hard when you're in the hot seat and that happens. And oftentimes history will judge you from the future, not from, you know, at that moment, you know, you, you'll get judged relative to the context of the future rather than like the context at that moment. Hmm. Okay. So quick speed round. So if somebody Brantley like was at your organization, would you fire him? So we'll just go around one by one because I think most of us are are currently in the position of run or running or having run organizations. Tarun, you first. I don't know, honestly. You have to go. We know we can't equivocate here and and say probably not, but you know, yeah, probably not. All right, Robert. You know, there's been a saying uh, at Compound for many years, which is. You know, we hire people regardless of their views about religion, sexual orientation, and cryptocurrencies. <laughs> um, you know, I, I personally believe in, you know, allowing people to be a part of an organization with extremely broad views. I think the cardinal rule is, you know, don't be, you know, offensive to people. I think it's one thing to have views. I think it's another thing to not being willing to engage in fruitful conversation. You know, it would depend on the circumstances, but you know, if it became, you know, a very public situation like that, and they, let's say, doubled down and tripled down and refused to apologize and refused to engage in fruitful conversation, you know, I would lean towards, you know, firing them, but it would still be extremely difficult. And, you know, my bias would be towards keeping them. Got it. Uh, Tom. Yeah, I mean, this is like classic, you know, paradox of tolerance kind of kind of stuff. I think the, the 
the thing with Brantley, and I've talked to a few folks who've worked with him is like, everyone said he's like extremely nice, you know, very inclusive. There's, I don't think there's any sort of idea that he would have maybe treated people who you know, were in his tweet maybe differently. And I don't think it would have had any impact on ENS, the, the product, which is another part of the concern with like, you know, uh, um, thinking about inclusion in the workplace. I think the problem is just uh, maybe as, as Sam said, like, if you want to build a team, a lot of people will not or want to work with somebody like that. Um, and therefore, it just becomes a problem for performance and company performance, independent of the actual output of the person or independent of the actual uh, you know, product impact. Yeah, I would say I, I agree with Robert's take here, but I think that makes me say fire. Because like somebody posted this like very, very long collection of like every single time he said the word gay. And he's he's posted like like 200 different tweets basically saying that like gay people are evil and bad and that they should go to hell or whatever. I'm just like, what, what, why do you could need have, to talk about this so much? Could have done that. <laughs> yeah. But then that's a, that's a hiring time decision because I know, that's so, true. That's true. But like, look, if you get it so, wrong when hiring somebody, like at least get yeah. it right, you know? Um, so yeah, I would, I would say also, fire. also, I think, uh, you know, while the ENS drama was drama, I think the real drama still hasn't been talked about in the show and the comments in the comments, everyone wants to hear about Bifinex. So, Oh, I think let's start with Sam because I, I actually feel like, you know, you were around when Leo came into existence and we're probably more close to that. So like, how, how, how do you feel about the, uh, the overall situation? I mean, like super excited that, that, that it was found. I think that that's great. And I, I think rewinding a little bit, I, I think, you know, the news today, I think is straightforwardly good and, and, and really happy for them. You know, what, whatever. I, I, I've heard a lot of, of rumors and stories about what, happened sorry really really briefly just to interrupt you because yeah. i think a lot of our audience maybe not know what the hell we're oh, talking yeah. about no so bitfinex uh recently announced that uh 4.5 billion had been recovered by the doj bitfinex was hacked many many years ago and there's a u.s couple that has been uh accused but not yet indicted is my understanding uh of having been responsible for laundering uh some of that 4.5 billion dollars in bitcoin so that was recently recovered by the doj sorry go ahead yeah. And, and and I think the implication is that they have the whole four point five billion dollars and probably are the ones who hacked it. I, I I don't know if that's been said explicitly. Allegedly, allegedly. But, we do uh, not allegedly. Yet know the facts. But but I think the the allegation is that they are the hacker, not just that they were somewhere in the food chain there. Although I'm not I, I don't know that for sure. You know, I, I think like I've heard a lot of different versions of what actually happened, you know, six years ago when when when, when the hack took place. But I think that the recovery here is remarkable from a number, not just the recovery of the coins, but the recovery of Bitfinex. I think like them going under as a business and their customers losing a third of their money was probably what most people would have guessed the outcome of that hack was going to be. And instead, they were able to keep operating. They gave everyone an option if they could take a haircut or they could take equity or they could get an IOU. And they ended up making everyone whole according to what they chose. And, you know, if you'd held on, you got paid back fully. If you took equity, I think you probably did better than that. So it's, I mean, I think, I think it's sort of a, it's remarkable how well that story ended up, given the circumstances, ending for, for everyone involved and, and for the customers. And I, I think it, it, it displayed some amount of, it was a, a gutsy move, but I think one that was probably the right one and, and, and showed a lot of dedication from the team involved there during what I know is an absolutely hellish thing to be involved in. I, th I think the, the 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 story that's funnier is that the uh, the culprits are people. Well, at least I will I will say I, someone I I knew 
reasonably well, uh, well, one of them, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, the weirdest thing is I used to run this meetup where people gave talks, and uh, she gave a talk about basically how to social engineer your way into anything. And <laughs> there was also this very weird scenario where, where like BitGo uh, also had her doing a talk on cybersecurity and, and, and hidden in this Bitfinex thing, and, and, and maybe this is actually something when, when Sam gets back, we can talk a little about, is you know, what's the relationship that BitGo had with this sort of incident? Because I, like, I, I do think they were involved in a lot of the custody portion around this time. And like, the relationship between Bitfinex and BitGo, somehow like that, that's something that has never been understood to me. You know, I don't totally understand about like, this attack, and Sam probably knows way better. I don't know for sure. I, I, I hear things. I don't have firsthand knowledge here that I can cite with confidence, but I can echo what Tarun said that there is, I, I think, a lot of things that are not generally understood or public about that relationship. And I think what it gets to is this really fucking nasty problem in custody for crypto. That I think we hear a lot of people saying is like, well, I want to store my crypto to a third party custodian. And I think the, my response is like, okay. First of all, there's like a question of how secure that custodian is. But, but second of all, how about that interface between the custodian and, and the exchange? Like, let's say that you sell a Bitcoin that you're storing at a third-party custodian to someone on the exchange, and then that other person requests a withdrawal of that Bitcoin, their private wallet. Then the exchange asks the custodian to send it, and do they just do it without asking questions? Like, if so, like, if the exchange gets compromised, probably... You're not safe if you're in a third-party custodian. If they don't, how are they filling withdrawals? And whose coins are those really? And like, who's what's the governance around that? How do you get settlement to work on two different, very different systems? What if the line between them is compromised, right? Like, what if someone like imitates the exchange talking to the custodian or vice versa? Like, it's the centralized bridge problem. <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, it's it's it's. it's it's, it's instead of bridging to decentralized things where you can actually look at the public ledgers of both, you're bridging to centralized things that you're hoping are both telling the truth and correct about everything. This bridges all the way down is what you're telling us. God yep. damn it. So Tarun, <laughs> I, I am fascinated by the story of this woman because I keep hearing tidbits about her. She's, pretty, she's actually like a funny person to hang out with. It's just that <laughs> I, I, she, she always did talk about these kind of a little bit weird things. Like she also knew a lot of cybersecurity people in New York, which mm -hmm. is how I, how I met her. And so, you know, I'm not totally surprised in some ways, but she's, she's a very good speaker. Her talk was hilarious. I, I don't know about her rap career as much as the internet does seems to know right now. They know much more than me. I was going to say the the details of the case are also pretty funny. Basically, it looks like they were like somehow spending like the Bitcoin on, on via gift. And that somehow tied some of the addresses to their email addresses. And they were just like storing the raw private keys on this guy's iCloud account with like a weak password, which is, I think, how the FBI actually like got a hold of it. So it's just like classic, terrible, like OPSEC. But, you know, somehow they're really? also maybe yeah. able to allegedly steal several billion dollars of, of Bitcoin. Also, this, this guy was talking about like on Twitter, like how he needs to teach people like crypto OPSEC, which was also kind of a little bit comical. 
I mean, the it, fact that they were cashing out via gift cards and Bitcoin ATMs and sending money to like many different exchange accounts, all of which was like Bitcoin from an extremely well-known and visible hack, shows that they are not criminal masterminds. Um, whether or not you know they are involved with the original hack or were just the recipients of the Bitcoin, you know, or something else, I have no idea. But a lot of that behavior is not you know, mastermind tier, it's really bad amateur tier. And sorry, I may have missed something here, but what, what exactly was their relationship with BitGo and with Bitfinex? Oh, so she actually was a consultant for BitGo for a while and did and, uh, basically like taught like cybersecurity for uh, consumers class. Like, we, don't, we don't know if this has any relationship to the hack. Like, it was what, small yeah, we, we, when the hack happened? No, this was way later, actually. Like, way later. Did she have a relationship with either of them while the while or before the hack? Not <laughs> unknown. Yeah, right now, the internet is full of innuendo and like a lot yeah. of whatever that, you know, Charlie from Always Sunny meme of drawing lines. <laughs> the, the reality right now is that we don't really know a whole lot. Um, and so it's not super useful to speculate. Also, Laura has repeatedly instructed us to use the word allegedly over and over again so that uh, we make clear that right now you know, there, there's not been a, uh, an actual uh, case that has been seen in a judge. So we don't know. Anyway, um, we're, we're running up on time and we did have some questions we wanted to ask Sam to wrap everything up. Uh, so Tarun, I think you're, you're first up. Yeah, so the big question, and this is the one that was sort of uh, you know advertised on the internet, was whether Sam is a word cell or uh, a shape rotator. And so just to give a little background, so Sam, how, how much do you know about the word cell versus shape rotator meme? I, I have seen it and have no idea what it means. Okay, cool. So it's basically a meme that makes is basically argues that um, there's two types of people in the world. There's one, the word cells, who are the cell uh, as a suffix referring to self sabotage. Uh, those who are you know very like Wait, no, no suffix is like incel. No, no, no. But incel comes from that too. It's, they're both the same Latin uh, suffix. Wait, really? Wait, no, incel is no incel is involuntary celibacy. Oh well, you should read the <laughs> really actual. You should read. You should read. You should read the etymology of of word cell, which is in this in this. Uh, Tarun is all shape rotator. Zero percent word cell. One hundred. Yeah, that is definitely true. That is As definitely true. Well, the, there there is the the kind of uh, the the god guide by the other Tarun. So it was invented by another person named Tarun, who's probably soon going to be more famous than me on the internet. So basically, shape rotators you know, really like logical, almost to a fault, can't express uh, things that they want in words very well, but, you know, can get a, you know, be a Putnam fellow. Um, exactly like Tarun. Word cell is like really good at writing, but maybe like kind of, uh, I don't know, ha has, has has sort of the, the feeling of like a journalist. Uh, and then the self-sabotage thing is actually where the cell comes from, according to uh, the the manifesto. But the, the idea of a word cell is someone who sort of like complains online on the internet a lot with big words. And so that, the, for some reason, that dichotomy has been just taken over uh, the internet. And, and so the, the, the thought is that the, the shape rotator, so it's not exactly just a mathematical versus literary divided. It's kind, of, it's kind of like your spatial intelligence but, but, versus but, but your verbal it, intelligence. It's, it's like more like an IQ test, right? Like if you, if you break down IQ tests, they have like, half of those like shape matching problems of like, Hey, are these the two shape or can you turn twist one to another? 
And the other one are sort of the, the vocab ones. And there's this argument that you should split IQ into... I, I mean, I don't really believe in any of this stuff, but like the internet decided to right. go on to it. I don't know. I mean, I guess three to one shape rotator to word seller or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Jeroen, how would you classify yourself on that spectrum? Probably, if you had to probably do ratio. Similar, probably similar. Like maybe four, 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 four. four to one. Wait, Robert, you said four to one? <laughs> no, Tarun is four to zero. Oh, four to zero, damn. <laughs> Look, right. If Tarun was four to zero, he would not be, you know, on the show. He would be uh, off in a closet. My, my hair, my hair color at least it gets me a couple word cell points, all right? That's, you definitely get word cell points for the hair and the, and the sweater. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're getting you're getting a good word cell bump there. I, and and I think uh, you know it's good it's good that now now how do you feel about this meme now that you've seen it so many times and that now you've kind of like sort of got an idea for it. I I think there's maybe something I've left to get about it. I, I think there's probably a spirit behind it that I haven't quite jived or melded with yet. That I'll see where I'm I'm gonna look to like oh that fucking word so like that's a fucking shape rotator. Yeah. I'm not at that point yet where I can be like that is the classic example of one of these. I, and, you, and, and, I, I want to diagnose it. I, I think the reason why this has taken off is that it's the first dichotomy of this kind that basically puts literary people in a lower position than mm. mathematical people. And like classically, it's the other way around. Like the journalists are yelling at tech people on the internet. And that's kind of the thing that's mostly happening on Twitter. Whereas like, oh, you're a word cell. Word cell is like basically an insult. And it, 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 it's kind of like being able to define your terms and like, no, 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 I'm not the nerd. You're the nerd. Yeah, this is like it's like proxy war for tech versus media, but like you know we're f- playing it through this other little thing, so it's not as as direct. Or another way of saying it is, uh, you know, shape rotator versus word cell is just Myers Briggs for shape rotators. You know, you want to make up your own dichotomy, <laughs> and, and here you go, <laughs> Myers Briggs for shape rotators. <laughs> now, good. now you that means Tom is a, a five five out of five <laughs> on this. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I think uh, we're probably all five of us are shape rotators, which is mm-hmm. why we're talking about this. If you were a word cell, you don't you're not talking about this. This is true. Uh, I think maybe I feel, maybe to give a slightly better answer, I think I feel natively much more like a shape rotator, but I think that I can rotate words as well if I need to or, or something like that. And hey, it, it, it I don't know, word rotator. That sounds like a $40 billion CEO answer. Yeah. That's very Are you a shape cell? <laughs> That's the other. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, much more of a word rotator. <laughs> okay, a word rotator. All right, I like that. I like that. Okay, um, I think we only have time for one more question, so I'll, I'm going to go ahead and ask one. So this is something I was, I was chatting about with, with a friend, actually. So if you look at like the, the real big characters that have come out of crypto in the U.S., who, who've led big companies and started new exchanges, the, the first one was Arthur Hayes. And Arthur Hayes is like almost the perfect polar opposite of you, Sam. He's like a big, super buff black guy who's like kind of a supervillain in a lot of ways. And just the way that he was like very brusque, he like, you know, just is sort of out there and like fighting with people. And um, was willing to kind of, you know, put a middle finger to, uh, you know, U.S. regulators. And you are very much the opposite, right? Like you sort of have this heroic status. You've donated a bunch of money to political campaigns. You're like this effective altruist. You're giving away a bunch of money. You're much more, uh, you're, you're much more shape rotating. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like hard to get <laughs> mad at you. How much of this is intentional and how much of this do you attribute to just like, how much of this was like, you saw what happened to Arthur and you're like, holy shit, I should not do that. I should do the opposite. And how much of it is just incidental to your differences in personality? Oh, I could be that buff. I just choose not. <laughs> um, uh, no, um, I, I think there's some of each. I, I mean, I, I think maybe the way that I would phrase it is something like, 
and, and look, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but my sense is that Arthur is Arthur. Arthur is being Arthur and he's being true to himself. And, you know, the Arthur that you see, it is sort of like, you know, there's some bluster, there's bravado, but I think that's a reflection of what he feels. And it's a reflection of what he thinks and how he thinks. And I think there's lots of interesting things that he thinks, um, that he talks about. I, I think that like the way that I approach it is almost just perpendicular to that, as opposed to like going in the opposite way or something, which is is something like, look, like I'm not, I feel like I didn't get born with like being like pro-regulator or anti-regulator. Sam, we lost you. I, I also saw Arthur kind of recently. He's, he's, he seems to be having fun lately. Yeah, I mean, look, to be clear, I love Arthur. Actually, I, I saw him at the same time guy. as you saw him. He seems yeah, to be yeah, just yeah. chill. He's chilling. No, Arthur, Arthur is great. I don't, want, I, I don't say that with any, anything but love for Arthur. He's great, and, and he's authentic, and I really respect that about him. And I don't know, it's interesting listening to him, and, and it can be fun. And I admire that he says what he thinks. And I think not enough people do that in general. But yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I sort of like approach it more from the perspective, I don't know, let's sit down, let's think about like what makes sense for society, what makes sense, what's the right thing to do here, like what, you know, what, what's the appropriate action, and then like, let's do that thing. And I think that like, that turns out to have like, come out in a very different place on like, regulatory matters than it than I think Arthur did. But it's not because I was like, born hating that or something like that. And it's sort of like, ah, you know, seems like some regulatory provisions to be healthy seems kind of dumb to like go to war over that like you know let's try and like work constructively regulators to like mm-hmm. build a regulatory environment that like achieves the you know 80 percent of everyone's goals or something like that it, it, it's sort of like my my like you know takeaway on that is sort of not very blustery it's not very sexy i don't know mm-hmm. no it's it's great spoken like a true shape rotator that's right okay all right. Well, on that note, Sam, we're going to have to lose you one last time because it's time for us to sign off. Uh, all right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.